Well, good morning, everybody. Are we on yet? Okay. Uh, well, I have to change the way I preach today because Pastor Steve's going to be in the building, so it's going to be a little different, a little more acceptable. Um, it's interesting, last week we discussed kingdom resources, right? And this week we're kind of piggybacking on what we talked about last week with kingdom resources and about how one of the things I shared with you last week was that if you really are interested in advancing the kingdom, you can't do it and not be uncomfortable. You can't do it and not have a little bit of pain that comes along with it. That's just the way it works because the world is set against kingdom advancement. <clears throat> And so today, by the way, I'm Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here in the garden. And today we're continuing this series called Move Over, which is a, a nine-month lectionary series based upon sermons throughout the Bible. But then in the second half, we've been parking in the Gospel of Mark, and that's where we're going to be. And what better way to continue to talk about Move Over, making room for Jesus, than the thing we're going to be discussing today, which is the elephant in the room. Yes, that's a cute picture, but the message is not going to be so cute, unfortunately. We have an elephant in the room in the church. I don't just mean Church of the Palms. I mean the church in general, especially the church in America. It's an elephant in the room that, that we do a very good job of ignoring. But the weight of it is undeniable because the elephant has been established by our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read the passage today. And he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Did you guys see that part? I don't want it to go in one ear and out the other. He taught that he must suffer and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. In other words, there was no nuance. There was no, you know, it might be kind of rough over the next year or so, guys. I might get a little scar here and there. No, he made it very clear. <clears throat> and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, you know, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the chosen one. What you're saying is bad teaching. <laughs> Jesus, you need to go to seminary. It's bad theology. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of of man, or in other words, the things of earth. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. You hear that? Whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, what words? The ones he just spoke. Forever who is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So let me give you some, you guys understand how we look at passages in the garden. We, we believe that what we have to do is we have to understand the history of a passage 
What about man? What did he do? Why did he do it? Then we have to understand the theology. What about God? What did God do? Why did God do it? And then we can really take that and apply a devotional application. What about me? What am I supposed to do? And how do I do it? So the history of this passage is interesting. There's an elephant that is ignored. In verse 27, right before this, Jesus had just healed a blind man. And the buzz continues to grow around Jesus, that Jesus is something special. And the crowds are getting bigger and bigger. And we talked about that last week. And so the crowds are getting bigger. So Jesus, knowing that his popularity is growing, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Other people, not you, but people outside our circle, outside our little church that we have built here, the 13 of us. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples answer, some say you're like Isaiah, the prophet, and some say you're John the Baptist, even though we know you're not him because, you know, he's dead. And some say Elijah or just some other prophet. Jesus says, yeah, that's about right. Who do you say that I am? And Peter is the spokesman. He says, you know, what everyone else is thinking but is too scared to say. Have you ever been in a situation where you wanted to say something so bad but you were scared because it might be inappropriate or rude. Or maybe you might even be wrong. But then somebody else without any filters, like Peter or like me, says it for you and you're relieved because they said what you wanted to say, but they took all the embarrassment. That's how I am in church meetings a lot of times, I think. And it's not good. It's not it's, Yep, who said that? Yep, Bill Lewis, thanks. (laughs) Write that down for me, Megan. Bill Lewis said that. So that's who Peter is here for his disciples. And Peter answers, he says, You are the anointed one. He was only half right, though. And he knew who the person was, Jesus, but Peter either was ignoring the plan. Or did not know the plan. Now understand, historically speaking, a Jewish man at this time would believe that the anointed one, the Messiah, was somebody coming to kind of restore the glory of Israel under David or Solomon, some sort of military leader to try to kick the Romans out of the occupation of Israel. But the problem is this. Over the course of the time they had been with Jesus, there had been many clues about the truth of who Jesus was going to be. But For understandable reasons, I'm not judging them, but for understandable reasons, the disciples did not want to acknowledge this. That's why Peter says, Jesus, stop talking about you dying. Stop talking about you suffering. Stop talking about you being persecuted. Stop talking about the Romans winning. So they didn't want to acknowledge this because you know why? Do you know why? Because this message that Jesus had was way too costly. I often feel this is how many of us in the church are if we were asked to answer this question, who do you say I am? I mean, the safe standard answer is, oh, Jesus is Lord. And yes, he is. But it's the kind of answer that really isn't matched up by a true understanding of what the word Lord really means. Because see, if you really declare someone as Lord, what you're really saying, are, saying is we are willing to sacrifice to the level that would actually demonstrate that, yes, Jesus is Lord. We operate, I feel like, I feel like we operate 
in a cloud that is shrouded by a state of denial regarding today's passage and what faith actually does to us. Yes, I said to you. See, we often think about faith just being something that does stuff for us, right? Faith did this for me. Faith also does stuff to you. And that's the part that we like to deny. So let's look at the theology, the part about this that I think is important. The elephant is revealed. First of all, Jesus defines the elephant. He says, the elephant is this. This is who I really am. I'm not a military leader. I'm a sacrificial lamb. I'm not here to kill others. I'm here to be killed so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And we'll, dis- we'll define for you abundant life in a little bit. Then he describes the elephant in detail. He says that the scripture says, he says very plainly, he came to die and to suffer. And he gives excruciating detail. And he talks about really for the first time about the sorrow and the pain and the grief that he, that they would have to face. And Peter doesn't like this. He doesn't like this message of sorrow, suffering, pain, humiliation, and death. He doesn't like that. He wants to hear messages about glory and power and justice and might and victory. That's how we like to think in the church too, isn't it? Peter rebukes Jesus, shows that Peter is still in denial, much like the rest of the church is today. Peter didn't want to deal with the reality of what Jesus was saying because subconsciously, I think, and I'm not sure, I'm not, in, I'm not in Peter's head, but I think Peter realized that what it would mean, I think Peter realized that this is what it meant for Jesus. What is it going to mean for me? I mean, if this guy that I'm giving everything up for that I'm following is going to end like this, what's it going to mean for me if my rabbi is right about what's going to happen to him? It's not going to be pretty. FYI, I believe that we are in denial about this most of the time as well, not just Peter. And then Peter is rebuked by the anointed one, by the Messiah. And Jesus points out that the elephant in the room and its specific message, you cannot deny it. But more importantly, and he says at the end of this passage, you cannot be ashamed of it. And I think we are very ashamed about the message of suffering. Because it's something that faith does not for us, but to us. And what exactly is that message that Jesus preached? We're still on the theological part of this. What is that message? Here's one part of it. Once the gift of faith is applied to you, only one thing will satisfy you. Are you hearing me? Once the gift of faith has been applied to you by God in his grace and his mercy. Mercy, he reaches down in the midst of your total depravity. He lifts you up, gives you life, applies faith, the ability to trust Christ. Only one thing from that point on will truly give you satisfaction, and that is a life that is fully lived in support of kingdom advancement. And we defined that for you last week. Kingdom advancement means one thing, taking the message of hope and redemption to others in an unadulterated, un filtered way. Everything else will leave you on earth searching, wanting, 
unsatisfied and in constant turmoil. You know why so many us Christians who are supposed to be living a life more abundantly are in constant turmoil? It's because we are avoiding the one thing that really actually brings us joy, which is kingdom advancement. And we keep trying to mix in a whole bunch of other stuff, thinking, well, yeah, I know Jesus, but this is only one thing will bring you abundant life. Kingdom advancement. Talk about moving over. Talk about making room for Jesus. This is what it really means, church. It doesn't come cheap. It's not just some walking down the aisle decision that you make and you fill out a card and boom, you have life more abundantly. Faith does a lot more, not just for you, but a lot more to you than that. You know what else is part of the message? The gospel must include this truth about suffering. The gospel must include this truth about the fact that you have to give up hope for happiness and everything else and put all your hope for joy and abundant life and happiness and fulfillment in one thing, advancement of your Lord's kingdom. What kind of message is this? This is not seeker-sensitive. This is not the kind of message that's going to draw a crowd, is it? It's a scary message. It's not seeker-sensitive. It's not watered down. It's not market-tested. It's not going to sell a lot of soda during Super Bowl. You know what else? It's an uncomfortable message. Faith will make, here's the message. Faith will make you unhappy with the things that make others happy. Faith will make you unhappy with the things that makes the rest of the world happy. That's an uncomfortable message. Why are Christians often unjoyful? Because they haven't given up their lives. They are at war with the faith that is in them, that demands, that demands, here's the elephant, that you give up your idea of life, that you make room for Jesus and not the world and Jesus. It makes you miserable. And then all of a sudden, They are shocked because we were ashamed of the message of Jesus in this passage. And we hid the part with our words about the fake spirituality and our fake joy. And we hid the part about the suffering. It's unreal what lengths we go to in the church to hide this part of the message, isn't it? Can you see how in some ways that we are ashamed of the words of Jesus in this particular passage? And by the way, this was not the only place that Jesus said something like this. Four or five different times he said something along these lines. So he made it very clear. Can you see what I'm talking about, about being ashamed of the words of Jesus? We're not ashamed of the name of Jesus. We invoke it all the time. Sometimes on US 41 when we shouldn't, but still, we invoke it all the time. But the point that I'm making here is this. We have this shame for this part about suffering. And that's why, that's why this message, while it's scary and it's uncomfortable, it's also a supernatural message. What do I mean by supernatural? Because it's a message that can only be embraced by a supernatural ability given to you by God. And the, who would want to embrace a message that says, listen, if you trust in Christ, the things you used to like, you're not going to like anymore. You might like them, but they're not going to make you joyful and happy and abundant. It's going to change everything about you. Who wants that? 
The only way we can accept that message is that the word of God through the Holy Spirit reaches down and pulls us out of the muck and the mire of total depravity, lifts us up, makes us alive in Christ Jesus, and gives us supernaturally the ability to have the gift of what? Faith. It's almost like forced spiritual surgery. I don't want surgery. It's going to hurt. Yeah, but you need it or else you'll die. So let's talk about the devotional side. Let's acknowledge the elephant, shall we? I'm going to read you a quote from uh, John MacArthur. He's talking about this message in Mark. He says, this message deals a death blow to man-centered, self-centered messages. This is not a message promising health or wealth or fulfillment or prosperity or healing or a boosted self-image or trouble-free living. This is a message of self-denial, cross-bearing, and obedience. But it is the Lord's message, and this is the one that we must preach if we would be faithful. I love that quote. But often we are ashamed of this part of the message. And we say, Jesus makes life easier. And then when it doesn't, the people we're preaching to are stunned and then disappointed. And we are ashamed because I feel like oftentimes we soft-pedal this gospel message. We market-test it. We take the edges off. We cut out the parts that don't seem like they would be appealing to a natural world because you know what? They aren't appealing to a natural world. That's why it's a supernatural message. So admit it, guys. We aren't really sure what we should do with this passage, are we? Don't you wish? We want to so badly redefine and box in the impact that faith can have and that following Jesus will have on our lives and on the lives of others, don't we? I mean, we look at what this verse says, and then we desperately hope that we can somehow interpret it differently. Surely it doesn't mean give up your whole life. Is it possible that on the first reading there's some hidden message or meaning that we don't really understand? Come on, Pastor Joe, unlock. I wrote this down because I want to make sure I got it. Unlock some secret original Greek word study you learned in seminary so you can remove the weight of this element so that we can be relieved and leave here today saying, I knew that couldn't be right. I got no secrets for you. I got no special Greek word study. When he says lose your life, what he really means is just chill a little bit. So let's list some rationalizations of what we hope this passage means when we're not acknowledging the element in the room. Surely it doesn't mean that the true gift of faith drives us to give up on our lives. Surely it doesn't mean that. Maybe it just means that's how it was in Jesus' day. This was, you know, historically, this is what they had to do. Not today in America, in this church. So this is how it was in Jesus' day. Or maybe it just means giving up our life. Maybe it just means we give up our Sunday morning to be in church. Anyone who follow me, he must give up an hour and a half on Sunday morning. Maybe two hours if the traffic's bad on B Ridge. And they're putting in new sewage pipes or whatever it is they're doing. Maybe it just means that we tithe 10%. Or maybe sometimes it means we just, maybe maybe 11% this year. That's not what it means. 
Maybe it means we're just supposed to wear a WWJD bracelet. No, I'm following Jesus. I got the rubber band on my wrist to show it. Right there. Snap. Maybe it means we put a Jesus fish on our rear bumper. Oh, I'm following Jesus. See the Jesus fish? Maybe it means we cuss less on US 41. Maybe that's what it's supposed to mean to give up your lives. Maybe it's because every time we get in the car, all the presets are set to the Joy FM. Maybe that's what it means. Oh, I'm following Jesus. I don't listen to Zeppelin in the car anymore. It's all Chris Tomlin. (laughs) No offense to Chris Tomlin fans. Maybe a little. Um, Maybe it means we're heavily involved in lots of church. Our schedule is full of church ministries that we're doing. None of that is what this passage means. None of it. Here's what the elephant is telling us. That the gift of faith leaves only one way to experience abundant living. And that is this, that kingdom advancement cannot be your hobby, but it now has to be your purpose, your calling, your obsession. Without that, without that, we aren't living life in Christ to its fullest. If we haven't truly surrendered everything that we have to the kingdom. We cannot soft pedal the gospel. Thinking that people will trust us because they don't know the whole story. If they knew about the suffering, they're not going to trust Jesus. So I've got to change it a little bit. That's being ashamed of the words of Christ. Do you want abundant living? I mean, do you really want to know what it means to have life and have it more abundantly? Because following Jesus, needs, it leaves no room in your life for ambition. Listen carefully. It leaves no room in your life for financial obsession. It leaves no room in your life for addiction. It leaves no room in your life for religious obsession and legalism. It leaves no room in your life, let's get outside the church now, with political obsession over ideologies or candidates or parties. No room in in your life for a Christian who is fully committed to kingdom advancement for obsession with politics. Oftentimes we like to somehow mix in our politics with our faith. Well, how can you be a Christian and not be for this or against that? There can be no room in your life For family obsession. Now, this is the one where some of you might, what do you mean family obsession? Because your family is a kingdom resource. Remember, we discussed this last week. It's not your resource. It's a kingdom resource. If you really want to have abundant living, there's only room for kingdom obsession. The gospel, unfiltered, unadulterated, uncensored, So it's time to acknowledge the elephant in the room. Acknowledge it by how we live. Acknowledge it by how we preach. No, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about you. So then we can start living life more abundantly and get this weight, this elephant weight of unfulfilled Christian living off our back.